We're now at verse 11, unable to finish from last time. Verses 11 to 17. We'll do 11 and 12 together. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He warns us, admonishes us not to speak against one another. We ought not, why? We're brothers, he says, brethren. Because we're brethren, we should not speak against one another. What does it mean to speak against one another? Does it mean you can't say the truth? Does it mean you cannot confront? Does it mean you cannot reprove and rebuke? Does it mean you cannot say, hey, don't you think that's a sin? Does it mean that? Is that what it means to speak against one another? No, it does not mean that. And we'll see. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is a summary of what he just said in 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Complaining against one another. And the reason we shouldn't, because we will be judged by the only judge and lawgiver who is imminently going to judge. He's standing right at the door. What's he mean then against speaking against each other? In context, in chapter 3, actually even earlier, all the way back to chapter 2, speaking against each other, chapter 2, 1 to 7, the way we speak against the poor and preferring the rich. And then in verses 8 to 13, having an arbitrary judgment, partiality, one against another. Chapter 2, 8 to 13. Because he says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There cannot be any partiality on the law. And then what about 2, 14 to 26? There are those who will produce good works, fruit, and those who will not. And when they do not, and that is brought to their attention, that's good. But if we do the opposite, for example, 15 and 16, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Actually, that's hypocrisy. Right. When we speak words like that to a needy brother. Chapter 3, 1 to 12, he warned us about the use of the tongue. That would be wrong use of the tongue is speaking against one another because he says in 3.18, it is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Deadly poison. We cannot spread deadly poison with our mouth. 3.13 to 18, the wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic. If we believe it and we repeat it, speak it, then we are going to be speaking against one another. How about chapter 4, what we just studied? Chapter 4, especially verses 1 to 4. Chapter 4, 1 to 4, the source of quarrels and conflicts, the fighting and the quarreling, the lusting and the envying, the evil motives, the hostility toward God. All of that is entailed with speaking against one another. All of these are in context. Chapter 5, 5, 1 to 6, here as well, the rich and their exploitation of the poor and how they will even condemn and put to death the righteous man in court, speaking against him in court when there is no basis for it. He's innocent, but they speak against him and accuse him wrongfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. 
has a full list of what it means to speak against one another. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Most of these are self-evident, but there are a couple of these that are abused in the local church whenever sin is confronted. Whenever sin is confronted or people are in the process of confronting sin, those who are unrepentant in their sin, they'll say, you're slandering me. You're gossiping about me. When we're trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what's going on and collect the evidence and the leadership, especially if they're trying to approach this sinner, unrepentant sinner, that's not slander and gossip. Slander is saying something false and evil against somebody else, but not saying something true about somebody. Right. If it's true, but it's a wicked thing that's true of a person, that's not slander. And then gossip. Gossip is saying things about others, having uh, sensual, salacious information about others, but you're not, and you're sharing it, but you're not doing anything about it. You don't care. You're just saying it for the sake of news. Isn't that what many people are? That when they are addicted to the daily news, they are addicted to the daily news because it's new. It excites them. It arouses them to be obsessed with the daily news. So in that way, gossips, when they go around, hey, did you know? Did you know this? Hey, that's the way it starts. A gossip starts his sentence or explanation that way. It shouldn't be like that. It should be for the purpose of edifying and helping, benefiting another if the information is shared. So if this is the definition of speaking against, as we saw in James and 2 Corinthians 12, 20, these are just a few examples in Scripture. This is the way we shouldn't speak against our brothers. And then when we do, we judge our brother wrongfully. We're judging wrongfully, hypocritically, and we are speaking against the law. And we judge the law. Why? Because our mind, our whimsical, earthly, natural, demonic wisdom becomes the source for our evaluation of another instead of the law of God. When the law of God should be the standard, it should be the measure. And when we do it according to the word of God, we are doing it according to scripture, then it's valid. And that's also going to be the way that puts a fence around our fleshly desires to have disputes and strife and jealousy, envy, slander, gossip, disturbances. Let, no, may that not happen. You know, violence or the threat of violence, may that not happen. But sometimes that happens. So when we do it according to Scripture, we are not judging the Scripture, but letting the Scripture judge our mind and our methods to help somebody else, truly help somebody else. Not according to our own inventions, but according to the Word. So we must be a doer of it, doer of the law of God, not a judge of it. Then when we do act based on our own wisdom, our fleshly wisdom, carnal wisdom, when we do that, verse 12 reminds us and should halt us. It says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one lawgiver and judge. Well, who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one. We're in no place. And this one, he is able to save and destroy. Right. So only what he thinks matters. He's the law giver. He not only gave the law, delivered the law to us, but he's the one that's sitting in judgment over the whole world and will determine who has lived in accordance with it and who has not. He's the only one. 
Not us. Right. <laughs> Not us at all. This, remember, chapter 2, he says, chapter 2, verse 8. This is why we must always put a curb, put a leash, beat down, buffet our flesh, and always ask and always submit to what the law of God says, the word of God says. 2.8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One lawgiver and judge. Isaiah 33, 22. Isaiah 33 and verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. And who is the Lord in 3322? 3317 will tell us, Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Who is the King that we will see in His beauty? Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, and we read 9 to 12. Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. But why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Ultimately, we all are accountable to Christ, which means only what Christ, who is there representing God the Father, only what he thinks matters. Not what we think only what he thinks. That's why the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. Colossians 3.16 So that we can have discernment. Not blindness. Here's another one where Christ teaches us. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1-6 This will deal with partiality. Matthew 7, 1-6 do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Our measure ought to be a righteous measure, not our own standard of measure, not our own carnal wisdom, but God, God's measuring stick, which is his word. And when we are judging, 
we have to make sure we take the log that's in our own eye out of it to be able to see clearly enough to help your brother with the speck in his eye. He's not saying we should never take the speck of sin out of our brother's eye. He's saying don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite in doing so. And the fact that we ought to practice judgment or discernment is in verse 6 because we have to know who the dogs and the swine are to stop giving what is holy to them and what is pearly to them. He's not saying there's no judgment for Christians to practice. He's preaching against partial judgment and hypocritical judgment, both here and in James. That's the kind of judgment we ought to avoid. Actually, there was a man in, in our local church. He was committing serial adultery for four years. And we didn't know about this until after the four years. But in the middle of the four years, about halfway in the fourth year, his daughter was committing fornication. And he approached her and strongly rebuked her on that fornication. And the fornicator and fornicatress, the two are in the same meeting. And this father, who was at the time committing serial adultery, was confronting his daughter and her fornicator. And he spoke some stern words, at least according to the letter he wrote to them, which he said he read and used as notes to address them in person. But he was in the middle of committing serial adultery with multiple women, too many to count, according to his own words. When months later he was exposed and confronted on it. That's the kind of hypocrisy the Bible is talking about here. That's one example of it. That's not the only, but that's just one Example. That's the kind of thing we ought not to do. We are accountable to God, and so we must first ask, what does God think? And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He said here, there's one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Matthew 10, 28. He is able to save and to destroy. Only one lawgiver and judge. 13 now, 13 to 17. James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In 13, he says, come now. He uses the same expression in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He is eliciting or trying to solicit the attention of a particular group and drawing them to pay attention to what he is about to say. And here, in 13, he's quoting them. You who say, he quotes them. That is, he's speaking on the basis of their very words, their very confession, admission, their plans, what they have announced, what they have spread to others, So it's knowledge, it's common knowledge. You who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Think for a minute. Those very words 
Is there anything in and of themselves wrong? Is it wrong to, to plan with a business partner and say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit? There's nothing wrong with the very words. But he knows the intention behind the words. Right. And so he, he, just like we, should understand. When people say words, the words might sound very right, very true, very biblical. But we have to understand what's behind those words. In other words, James is saying we can know people's motives. We can know whether the heart is right or wrong. We can know that. How can we know it? By what comes out of their mouth and what their goals are, what their behavior is, what they're going to do with what they say. And as they begin to take action, we know what they're all about. We can know what's in the heart. Didn't Jesus say, so then you will know them by their fruits? Right. Matthew 7 15 to 23, or 13 to 23, you shall know them by their fruits. You know what's inside by what they say or what's on the outside. Isn't that what he's been addressing throughout this letter? The conflicts and the quarrels. And in this regard, if, if, the, if these two men, let's just say it's two men, if there are two men agreeing to do this, what if the two men are married? What if the two men have families? They are talking about what they want to do, but what about the quarrels and the conflicts that may arise in the family, among relatives? What's going to happen? And what about temptations abroad? They are not thinking about those matters, at least not well enough to make sure. So, those are sins. Also, they assume, without saying the Lord wills, verse 15, they assume that they will live tomorrow, that they will live the rest of the day. If they had this plan at 8 a.m. and said, today at noon, let's go on the trip. If they did that, they don't know if they're going to live four hours later. They don't know if they're going to live tomorrow. Also, when they go to the city, they don't know that they will make a profit. They don't know that. Isn't business risky? Many fail, some succeed. They don't know that they will make a profit. Not at all. And also, the twin sins of uh, charismania, the twin sins of charismania, health and wealth, are addressed right here. And we speak of charismania or charismatics, but their sin, which is very overt, is actually everybody's sin. Yep. Everybody is preoccupied about his own health and wealth. Everybody is. Some manifest it more blatantly than others, but this is really a fundamental, carnal, human experience. We all think we're going to live tomorrow and we all think we're going to do well or do whatever we can to do well and make a profit. But we don't know. There's no humility here. That's why he addressed humility in verses 6 to 10. There's no humility here. That's why he says in verse 16, it's arrogance, arrogance and boasting. So the words may seem fine, but there's more to it. We have to observe the context of it. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Do not boast about tomorrow. Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 and 13 to 21, Luke 12, 13. 
And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Usually, a dispute about the family inheritance happens upon the death of someone, right? Yep. Okay, so this is recent and this is on his mind. He's preoccupied about the inheritance, not sufficiently grieving and humbled by the death of his relative, probably his father. Then he approaches Christ in order to seize what he thinks he should own. Christ rebukes him. Man, who, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Meaning on the human level. How did I suddenly become your judge or arbiter? I don't, I'm not in the legal profession. And he accuses him of greed. Be on your guard for every form of greed. And he illustrates with a rich man, with a very productive land. And notice in 1217, this relates also to wisdom, like James has taught us, where to find this wisdom. In 1217 of Luke, he began reasoning to himself. No consultation with others. No searching of the scriptures. No prayers to God. Nothing like that. Isn't that what James said in James 3, 13 to 18? Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. It's not coming from above. Here, it's to himself. He reasons to himself. He's just talking to himself. And he thinks he's going to have many more years. Because he says in 19, I will say to my soul. He continues reasoning to himself. Only to himself. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Many, many. He's thinking, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God calls him a fool. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? You've been so greedy and covetous about yourself. What about your loved ones? He's thinking about himself here, but what about his loved ones? Is he not thinking in, in the proper way about the whole matter? He's not consulting God and not loving his neighbor as himself. This is the kind of man who is rich toward himself, but not toward God. Verse 14, James 4, 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We are here temporarily and then vanish away. Everybody thinks he's going to live a long life, 70, 80 years. Everybody thinks, everybody thinks he will live and have a full life, a successful life, a productive and healthy life. Everybody imagines that. Everybody dreams about that. But Scripture tells us over and over, that that's not the case. In fact, how long did it take Adam and Eve to sin and experience death? Very, very little. 
likely, most likely, on the sixth day. On the very day they were created is the very day they sinned. And right after Eve was created and God said, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right after he said that, then the serpent enters into the picture and tempts them and they both sin. Death. On the sixth day. Not even in the night. This very night your soul is required of you. In their case, it happened quickly before night came. Psalm 39. Psalm 39 teaches us this truth. We'll read Psalm 39, but also note that Psalm 90 addresses this as well, the temporary ephemeral nature of human life. Psalm 39 and Psalm 90, and we'll read a couple of other verses in the Psalms. But we'll read all of 93, uh, 39. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was dumb and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. And this is what he says. Lord, this is his prayer. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become dumb. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He says in... Four, let me know my end, the extent of my days, how transient I am. Verse 5, I am like hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing in your sight. At best, a mere breath. Verse 6, we walk about as a phantom, make an uproar for nothing, as though we're great, we're lasting. But no, he amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 13? And further in verse 11, surely every man is a mere breath. Every man is a mere breath. And we are strangers and sojourners on the earth. Strangers and sojourners. Sometimes strangers and sojourners just make a one-day trip into the country. And then they leave. They get a visa or permission to enter another country as a stranger or sojourner, an alien, for just a day or a part of a day, and then they return to their home country if it's a border country. Correct? At other times, they might stay longer than that, but strangers and sojourners are temporary inhabitants of a country. That's the way we are. Psalm, in the book of Psalms, now... 62, verse 9. 62, 9. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Lighter than breath. Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 47. 89, 47. We'll read 46 to 48. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is. 
For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And lastly, 144, verse 4. 144, verse 4. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Everyone needs to know this, but especially youth need to know this. Because youth think that because they have not lived life, everything is before them and they will be able to conquer the world. That won't happen. It will not happen. Even in one generation after another, there are barely a handful of men who are able to have any kind of worldwide victory or status. He is the one who gives the rulership over the realm of mankind and he gives it to whomever he wishes. Daniel 4, 17. So that's not going to happen to us. So let's be humble and find our place according to the will of God. Find our place in the world according to what his word teaches us. And not be boastful or arrogant in the matter. Verse 15. How can we prevent it? 4.15 of James. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, it is dependent upon the will of God. It's always dependent upon the will of God. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. This is in his travel, even in his ministerial travel. If the Lord permits. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. Even our own sanctification, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ and pressing on to maturity. Our sanctification is based on the will of God. Hebrews 6.3 This we shall do if God permits. Hebrews 13.20-21 Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But how can we know His will? If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. There are two components to the will of God. Two components, two facets. One, what He reveals in His Word. And another component, that which He has not revealed in His Word, which we will know after it unfolds in the world. That which is in His Word and that which is unrevealed or concealed or secret But when it happens, then we know. For example, in the morning, if the Lord wills, we shall come here to study the Word. Right? But we don't know if it will actually be true of each of us individually until we actually arrive here. Correct? Because He could have prevented us from coming on the way here. That's the unconcealed secret part we don't know. But does his word teach us that we ought to be eager to know his word? Yes, so we look for opportunities accordingly, right? Now, one might say, this is not biblical. But actually, it is biblical. These two ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. The secret things, the hidden things, the concealed things belong to God. He only knows what he will indeed do in this world, even in relation to each of us individually. But what we ought to do is revealed in his word, and we should act accordingly. In those ways, we should say, if the Lord wills. Now, with this kind of approach, let's just say, since he has used the example of a business venture, what if the business venture is going to jeopardize something in our marriage and family? When we say, if the Lord wills, then we have to say, well, let me see what the Bible says about jeopardizing my marriage and family. And if the Bible says I ought not to jeopardize my marriage and family, then I shouldn't undertake that business venture. You see? And then once you do do it, let's say it is in harmony with your marriage and family, and you do do it, you still have to say, if the Lord wills, because you don't know if you will be successful. You pray for it, but you don't know if it's going to happen. Pray for it. That's the humble way of saying, if the Lord wills. We shall live and also do this or that. If it matches his word and matches our humility and submission to his word, then we'll know and have assurance that God is with us when we undertake whatever we do. But when we don't do it, 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boasting in arrogance. Arrogance is more of the attitude of pride. Pride is at the root, and he's addressed that in verses 6 to 10 of this chapter. But arrogance is more of the attitude of pride, and then the boasting is actually in the words. You know that somebody is arrogant and proud when it comes out in his words, he's boasting about what he's thinking, believing, and doing. All such boasting is evil. Not gray. Not your opinion, your preference, your way of looking at things, your suggestion, your advice. No, it's evil. And it ought to be rejected. Now the summary. All of this so far, throughout the letter, especially in chapter 4, and even in verses 13 to 16, is all of this not evident? Is it not one self-evident according to the law of God in the heart and in the conscience? Is it not evident that way? And then is it not evident from our knowledge of Scripture? Right? So we already know. We already know. But we act contrary to what we know. Both within our heart and within the Word of God. Therefore, verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now he's used this little itty-bitty word that everybody likes to avoid. It's not difficult to spell and it's not difficult to pronounce, but nobody wants to use the word because they don't want to accuse themselves of sin and they don't want to lose a friendship or relationship and accuse somebody else of sin, so they avoid using the word sin. But the apostle by the Holy Spirit, does not permit that. He does not permit that. He says, to one who knows the right thing to do, we know what to do, and we don't do it, then it's reckoned sin to us. He's not saying it's a sin to you, but not to me. He's saying, it's, you are guilty of it. It's on your head. To him, it is sin. To him, it is sin means, 
It is your responsibility. You have to own up to it. It's on your head. To him it is sin. So let's do whatever we know. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, relevant to this. We know what to do. King Saul knew what to do in 1 Samuel 15, but he didn't do it. If we know it's right, then we should do it. No excuses. Otherwise, it's sin. Which brings up the subject, what is sin? What is sin? What's the definition of sin, biblically speaking? Here we have one definition, 417. If we know the right thing to do and do not do it, it is sin. Therefore, do it. So it's righteousness. Uh, James 2, James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The law, that is here he cites a couple of the Ten Commandments. He's not being exhaustive, he's just citing two. He could not be saying, um, murder is evil, Adultery is not, theft is not, idolatry is not, lying is not, covetousness is not, taking God's name in vain is not. He's not meaning it that way. He's just using two examples within the Ten Commandments. So any breach of the Ten Commandments, even in a little way, makes us guilty. We have sinned. 1 John. 1 John. Chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Which corresponds to what James said in James Chapter 2, verse 10. He says, sin is lawlessness when we break the law of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. 1 John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness is sin. And where would we find a model of righteousness? In the word of righteousness. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. We're supposed to be built up or partaking of the word of righteousness. So whatever con- is contrary to the word is unrighteousness and therefore it is sin. How about also Romans Four. Romans four fifteen. Actually, let's go to chapter three. Three nineteen. Romans three nineteen and twenty. Three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's the law that teaches us the knowledge of sin. 4.15, Romans 4.15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. The law brings wrath, therefore whatever is contrary to it. Chapter 5, Romans 5.18 and 19. Excuse me, Romans 5, 20 to 21. Romans 5, verse 20. 
And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law, the law through Moses came that the transgression might increase. Romans 7, 7 to 8. Romans 7, 7 to 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. We cannot have any proper definition of sin unless it is based on the law of God. Right. And one more in Romans 14.23. Romans 14.23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And how would it be based on faith? Based in faith. How would faith be valid faith? If it's faith in the word of faith. That, that word of faith he's mentioned as the gospel, the Bible, Romans 10.8. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Whatever is not based on faith in the word of Christ is sin. Even something as mundane as what we eat. People say, you're making sin out of everything. Well, no, the Bible did. The Bible does. Even what we eat or don't eat. Because it says here, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever he, whatever is not from faith is sin. Not only what we eat, but our attitude in what we eat, whether we're eating in faith or not, determines whether it is sin or not. Then in humility, let's do God's will, asking what his will is so that we practice righteousness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.